welcome back, Calm listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, we've got a really awesome guest today. Everyone, please welcome Ankith Harafi from Macro.io. Ankith, how are you today? I'm doing great. John and Cal, thanks for having me. So I wanted to open with a question. What gets you excited about life? That is a big question. Okay. Um, I think I'm just in general a very curious person. And so I think appeasing that curiosity just gets me excited. And so whether that's things that I'm already interested in and deepening those interests or finding new things, um, it's just kind of playing towards the curiosity and honestly kind of just like trying to maintain that youthful, like childhood level of excitement about things. Yeah, that's really good. I always say be curious about the world. I think it's a life hack to steering your life in a direction that makes sense and actually choosing where you want to go in life. Was this this revelation that you had for a while now? What was the first time you decided to lean into that and decide that you wanted to keep tapping into that? I think that the first times aren't in the greatest in my memory, but probably my parents, where as a kid, I was very obsessed with like how things were built and like how are they made. But what that resulted in, like what the end symptom of that was, is me just destroying a lot of stuff. Like I would get toys or I would get anything. And I'd usually just try to break it apart and like look inside it. And initially, obviously that was like very destructive, but I think my parents were able to recognize, okay, like, the intent there is not to just destroy and break things, but I'm doing it with a purpose. And so quickly ended up 10 years later from that point, working on motorcycles with my dad. And so it quickly became this thing where channeling this sort of curiosity and potentially destructive energy but into something that was actually more productive, so to speak, and feeding that curiosity as opposed to trying to like tamp it down. Yeah. And do you think it's a special personality that gravitates toward that or is it something that everyone has in them that they just ignore do you think we're all have that ability and some choose to lean into it and some don't or is it just a special type of person i think it's kind of both it's like the nature versus nurture question i think everyone probably has varying levels of that naturally within them but then it also the environment the people that they've been supported with and brought up with that at the young age can help you like recognize and like understand before you can even verbalize or are old enough to really understand like these are my interests. Like people can pick that up for you. But yeah, I think the answer is always it's both. Yes, yeah, so I can relate to that because my cousin had a very similar experience. Let's say as a child, he was very well known in the family that he just takes these toys, he'd break them down, but it's purely out of curiosity and he wanted to know how they work and how he can sometimes reconstruct them into something else. So I remember him taking different parts from different toys and turning them into a remote-controlled car. Quite impressive for someone at his age at the time. So I can definitely relate to that, and I can understand that once you understand and you feed that curiosity, it perhaps can grow your potential and think, what else can I do? How does this thing work? And what can I use this instead and try to maybe use that Lego ideology or Lego concept of putting things together and creating something perhaps that's better or something that is more desired. Yeah, I think that Lego is one of the most fascinating companies and also like influential for the most formative years of you know, most kids' developments is that they just have created this world where the toy is actually just a building block and you can literally build it physically as you play with them. It actually influences the way of your thinking when you're so young. And so I think that they do so much good for the world and the kids who have opportunities to access their toys. Even like the oldest one. The new Legos versus old Legos, that's another great part about them. There's no real difference. They've been relatively the same across decades, but the magic is still there. Yeah, I heard a saying about Lego, which is that their manufacturing tolerance is so precise that you could stack Lego from, like you said, 30 years ago to now, and it would actually just work, which I think is actually simple yet cool concept, right? And that company knows its purpose. They knows what they're doing and they stick to the formula. You got to admire that, right? It's like not trying to reinvent the wheel every time. Definitely admiration from multiple angles, not only just like the strategic angle of 
making sure there's this backwards compatibility. But the engineer in me also is appreciative of what you just said, how tight those tolerances are and their ability to manufacture Lego pieces that not only have those tolerances to begin with, but also retain over years of wear and tear and still have the same function as they did day one. Yeah, and I feel like you would know the answer. Is there a crazy Elon Musk CEO personality behind Lego? Do you know how it started? I actually never heard the story. I don't, but now I'm very curious to like look that up. Yeah, because I feel like there's some guy yelling on the factory floor, make this better. You can't do this. And making sure everything works out. And what's your favorite Lego set? So I mean, Lego had like a bunch of different offshoots. Like they had Bionicles. They had so many different partnerships with like, other brands. But I don't remember what they were called specifically, but I went to Legoland as a kid, actually a handful of times. Again, my parents recognized that obsession with Legos. And so every few years or whenever we had the opportunity to the means, we'd go to Legoland in California. And one trip I remember coming back and I had this red truck, but it wasn't a normal truck. It had like pneumatic actuators and it had this forklift style mechanism on the back that you could customize. And that was amazing because not only like, hey, you could actually steer this truck and actually turn the wheels and you could see the engine and when the wheel would turn, it would actually be connected to the axle and the drivetrain and the pistons would actually move in the engine and you could see all that happening. But the pneumatics was also such an interesting portion too, where you could actually like have this little pump and then you would push all Lego levers and then the crane's arm would actually move and expand and close and drop and it was just so interactive and it added that extra dimensionality of not just like the physical but also pneumatic as well see i remember i guess kindergarten we had those massive blocks we were playing with and i guess it was teaching spatial things and shapes but why isn't lego just in every school and that would be a great way to introduce engineering to people who hate math more hands-on and just to understand how the world is built. You know, most people don't know how a house is built or how things work. And I think it's almost a calming effect or in a world of politics and media in your face and all this kind of stuff. I think just understanding the world is just a good way to help navigate it at the very least. Yeah, I could not agree more in terms of like Legos in the classroom. I think it's a great learning tool. So what are you up to these days? also give us an idea of what came after Legos or do you still play with them weekly and build? <laughs> no, unfortunately I do not. But now in appreciation for Legos, I've seen even more recently that there are actually adult level Lego sets that engage as an adult. There's a lot of Porsche 911 GT3 models have these really expensive Lego sets that are almost like art pieces. You assemble them and you actually kind of just keep them as like decorative art in your house as an adult, which I think is really cool. So maybe we can save up for one of those one day, but... No, I think that the Lego journey kind of led to me studying mechanical engineering, or I guess even before that, working on motorcycles for my dad, like I said earlier, I've been studying mechanical engineering, then working on the Formula Racing team in undergrad. But actually, after the end of my undergrad, that's where most of my obsession with mechanical engineering from a professional perspective stopped and realized it wasn't what I wanted to make my career out of. So I've obviously now pivoted to software and startups, but on the personal level, I think the way I kind of live vicariously through that phase is just by being kind of as active as I can be in motorsports communities, whether it's like local car meetups or F1. And now with the recent success of Drive to Survive, there's so many more F1 fans. It's great to have like a community around that too. And getting friends who've never been interested in the sport now have their own favorite drivers. And so that's been kind of an outlet. Yeah, I think I'm just going to mute my mic and let you guys talk because I'm not sure if you're aware of how big of an F1 fan Cal is, and that's how I know him when I first met him. He just wouldn't stop talking about it. So go for it, Cal. Yeah, I was just going to say, you talk my language here. Although, to be honest, I haven't been watching Formula 1 this year, but I always follow it. And I used to be quite the big fan, watching every single session, practice, qualifying. I was yeah. used to go through all the technical details of the regulations they go through every year, what every team does. So I'm quite a technical guy in the sport, not just following the racing, although that's quite exciting, which also helped me eventually get into motorsport myself. I did some racing myself, nothing extremely high caliber, but it was on a junior level. I did Formula Mazda, I did a few stints in Formula 3000 car and it was quite exciting. So I actually tried to actually get in back to school. I went to school for accounting and finance. But after I finished, I was planning on going back to school for automotive engineering. I wanted to partake in the formula 
program as well, but that just ended up not happening, unfortunately, in terms of going back to school for a second degree. But the passion is there and, you know, perhaps we can talk about it sometime. It'll take, I guess, days for fans to really enjoy it because believe it or not, even though there's quite a growing fan base here in Bahrain where I am located, it's still not as big as I would like it to be. Yeah, that is awesome, first of all, that you've even like gotten that level of like Formula Mazda and Formula 2000. So very, very impressive nonetheless. And yeah, it's always awesome to meet another person who's in the sport. Yeah, I just remember we used to work together at a car dealership and our boss basically, I think through Cal's idea, signed us up for a karting series. And I remember it was just like all of us, I think I was between first and second when you don't include the fact that Cal was just lapping everybody. So we, we had we had everyone, you know, doing their thing, having a good time, and Cal was just racing helmet gloves and, like, ready to tear everyone down. But it was really cool. How did you two meet at that car dealership? Yeah, exactly. So he had got hired, and we sat next to each other. We had always talked about, there's got to be more to life. How do you balance needing a job and doing well with finding time for your hobbies and interests and leading into what excites you, which is kind of how this started. And we're about a year into the podcast, but we've been having crazy WhatsApp conversations, emails, and just always throwing ideas around. And this is slowly manifesting into a constant. And just thanks for coming on because the value we get just by someone donating an hour of their time just to have a chat and is at the very least motivational and in the max, very inspirational. I end the call and my day's pumped, my week's pumped. So we try and do a weekly recurring thing. And that's how it all started. That is awesome. Where was the car dealership? So we worked in Oakville, Ontario. So Cal had come, I think he went to McGill, basically a uni in Montreal. And that's where we're from. What about yourself? Where are you based out of? So I'm recently based out of now Austin, Texas. Prior to that, I was in Boston for, what was it, like five and a half years? But I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. That's cool. And Austin seems to be the new haven for a lot of people are going to Texas. I guess cost of living is good. Is it very software based or is that a new thing? You know, Silicon Valley exodus seems like everyone's going to Texas. I don't know if I can definitively answer given I've only been here for a few months. I think it's very mixed, at least what I've seen. There's definitely a really vibrant software community, crypto community, but then also there's a lot of what I would call like more services businesses, like people run dropshipping companies, e-commerce brands, lifestyle businesses, real estate companies as entrepreneurs. So it's maybe not the stuff that you're going to read about in TechCrunch, but it's, I think just as impressive, if not more. And they're silently just like creating these massively profitable companies that help them sustain an amazing life here. Yeah. And maybe we can talk about that because there's a huge movement, I think, partially from the whole crypto wave, but you've had people who took an agency towards saying, I can control my life. And then all of a sudden, how many new people are all over Twitter growing e-commerce businesses or like you said, dropship and just controlling their life? And the scale doesn't have to be hundreds of millions of dollars. You don't have to be Jeff Bezos. You could make a great side income that eventually grows past your wildest dreams. And that's the fascinating part, the result of the internet and being your own brand, being your own person is just really connecting people. And there's probably endless YouTube videos, but do you find that living there specifically has had a better influence on your career, your drive? And what made you choose Austin itself? Was it just a company decision? Our company is fully remote, but it was both personal in terms of having some friends and extended family here, but then also professional in terms of my co-founder actually did come down to Austin as well. So it was kind of both, but not solely motivated by company just because our company is fully remote given the type of software that we build. But in general, I had no clear ties to any location. Portland was obviously an of mine given my family was still there, but the tech scene's not there. I had kind of experienced what I felt like what was the most of what Portland had to offer growing up there. And I routinely visit frequently. So I wanted to explore somewhere new. I'd actually never been to Austin even once before I moved here. I was going to go for South by Southwest and be in the tech event there, but that was during COVID. And so that was obviously canceled. And yeah, I mean, I think that one of the criteria is also just lower cost of living, be able to afford and eventually buy a place here. Good weather. I think coming from Portland, went to undergrad at Cornell and went to New York. And then in Boston afterwards, like these are all places that are not known for good weather. They're actually known for 
gray and rainy and then freezing cold in big winters and tons of storm and snow. And for once, I kind of was like, let me just see what it's like to live in a place that's known for having amazing weather. And I actually think Austin's a little bit of the antithesis of Boston in that in Boston, like the summers are amazing. I think that both coasts, like Pacific Northwest and East Coast, incredible summers. And then the rest of the year's winter is like really, really rough. And it's kind of the flip side of that here where the summers are actually quite hard here in terms of the, the heat and you basically don't leave your house during the day until it's after 7 or 8 p.m. But the rest of the eight, nine months are supposedly, as I've been told, since I haven't even lived here doing it yet, but amazing. And you have a little bit of seasonality, but in general, it's like great weather um, all around and you're never kind of in extreme cold or anything like that. So I'm looking forward to experiencing that. But the city is very alive and vibrant and it has a useful feeling to it. Tons of people is always out and about, whether you're even in downtown or the suburbs, there's always a lot going on. And it's nice to visually see that activity. Whereas I think in other cities like Boston, there's activity happening, but it's not like as visual. You aren't just like walking around and like seeing the activity. It's like more probably this is less outdoor related stuff. Yeah, good for you. And I think we're basically borderline outskirts of Toronto, at least where I'm from. And I was born in Toronto. So the cold always never made sense to me. I think in the <laughs> coldest of cold days, I wonder why people haven't settled here. It makes no sense. They must have got million dollar checks to just live here. But here we are. So I mean, yeah, it would be cool to travel and see. I think Miami was on the radar for a lot of people I visited there. I've done Chicago, New York for small trips. I've done Ohio actually as well. So maybe Austin, Texas is in the cards. It sounds like an awesome place. So how did you meet your co-founder? Was it a similar story? Just you guys went to school together, worked together? Yeah, school for sure. So so graduated from Cornell Mechanical Engineering. Like I said, didn't do any mechanical engineering after that. After I lived in Boston for a little bit, found myself working in competitive video gaming at a startup that was started by a family friend. Loved that. That was like my first exposure to startups. And then he was a Harvard Business School alum, him and his co-founder, who to this day, I can see that himself both incredibly close friends, not just and mentors, not just kind of former bosses. After working with them for a few years, recognized this kind of, again, I think coming back to recognizing someone's energy and helping them take that to the next level and supporting that, like my parents have done in my early childhood to my adulthood to college, and now with Rohan and William, the co-founder of GamerSense, they recognized my spark and idea to start something of my own. So they wrote a letter of recommendation for me to go to Harvard for my business school degree. I was fortunate enough to get in. And actually at that same exact time, they were launching a new program, which is a joint degree called the MS MBA, which was a master's of science. I want to specialize in, I was choosing computer science and the MBA. It was still a two-year program, but they were like, this brand new, we did the first cohort. And I'm not a stranger to trying new things and being a guinea pig. So I definitely signed up for that, especially because the sole purpose of that program and of that cohort is geared towards entrepreneurship, people who want to start tech-oriented companies. It was within the first week of that program that I met my co-founder, John Keck. And he has actually a very similar story. Mechanical engineering from Purdue, tried the mechanical engineering life at Eli Lilly from Pharma Company, really disliked it. And actually what basically got chosen from then, I believe it was, to join DoorDash right around their Series A to help them launch the Midwest cities and went from like launching an operations manager to then eventually leading and creating their entire internal tools team and that was like a rocket ship, obviously, as they scaled, I think, from like 50 to thousands of people by the time he left to join the MSNBA program at Harvard. And so I had a similar background, but just kind of really vibed and connected as people. And we didn't even have an idea specifically that we wanted to work on, but we kind of, without even really formalizing it in terms of legal docs, but even like colloquially, we were just saying, okay, we're working together. We're working on something. We're thinking through things. We're trying different ideas. And that's kind of how we met, how we got started. And after, I think, three or four pivots of ideas that had varying lengths of attempts at trying to see if they were, had anything there, we ended up at where we are now. Yeah, what a story. And I always just admire the fact that people not romanticize, but appreciate the process and not knowing where the end journey is. And I think people conventionally grow up listening to what the right path might be, which is go to school, get a job. It used to be get a factory job. Now it's get a higher education job. But there's a disconnect between the whole lawyers working at Starbucks and the oversaturation of programs and the amount of people who are lost and not even getting jobs in their field. So I think there's intellectual dishonesty from academia, from society saying, okay, you'll be fine. And the millennials conundrum is to say, 
the world isn't perfect and how do we each individually find our way and be happy and make a difference so really huge thumbs up if your co-founder wants to come on and talk about doordash we did a doordash episode when they ipo'd we talked about airbnb so what would you say you had pivoted three four times were you guys just testing random ideas or were those ideas kind of close to your chest would you argue over them bounce them around what was that discovery and testing process like before you kind of hit something that made sense? Yeah, so first off, I think John would love to come on the podcast and talk, so I'll definitely connect y'all after. The discovery testing process, it wasn't random per se. One of the reasons why we paired up, why we thought it would be great to work together and why we chose to kind of just lock ourselves into this partnership was I think we were very thematically aligned. Like We had a lot of the similar interests and experienced a lot of the same frustrations and also admired a lot of the same companies. And so our initial idea was around time. And I have super vague, like probably one of the most broad terms, right? But we personally both felt this struggle where we didn't know how we should be spending our time. And that's not necessarily like in classes or anything like that, but as young adults who had just entered the workforce a few years ago, we're starting to get into what it actually means to be an adult and take care of yourself and start to provide and save and invest and do all this stuff. There is no guidance on, hey, like, here's how as an adult, you should start to think about spending your time. It's a lot of times socializing by yourself and, and being introspective and forcing yourself to be alone sometimes where it might be uncomfortable what it's like for your own beneficial relationship. How much do you spend doing social activities or physical activities like exercising? And we both found we're like, we'd love if this type of diet existed or recommendation system of how I want to live my life and where I want to get to and my end goals and how I could start segmenting and for doing that. And a lot of our ideas were tested around that. I think the testing method varied to the extent of how legitimate it was. It could be as like just talking about it with some other friends and just running the idea by them, visually seeing their reactions. If something in them clicked and they like got really excited about it or they just like had a lot of questions and it was either they don't think the idea is really valuable but they're too kind to say, they're not explaining it well enough, but I think one of the things, which is I think one of John and I's superpowers and strengths, but also our biggest downfall is we are engineers at heart. And so what that means is we always have the inclination to build. There's this great article by David Sachs called Crossing the Penny Gap or something like that. But basically, in short, the startups of the past, and it's very common still today, there's a kind of a step that they quote unquote teach you for entrepreneurship, which is you find a problem. And you go and you talk to as many people as you can, as broad of a spectrum as you can, who are, you think are experiencing this problem and you learn and learn and learn and learn. And you form personas of people who are experiencing this pain point. And then after you really learn, know a lot about the problem, you know it so intimately well, you know the personas, you know who you're going to be building for, their specific perspective and slice is on that problem. Then you go and build. And then you know you probably built something that people will value because you've learned a ton beforehand. We didn't do any of that. As engineers, we build first. And so really what that ended up being, and what David talks about in the article, is this reverse process where you build because you're just like, this is some cool shit. I'm very personally interested in it. I would love if this existed. I'm going to go build it. You build it and you release it. And then it could get nothing. Like no one else finds it interesting and you're just fine. Or the office case is like people start using it. And maybe a lot of people start using it. But then the thing is you have no idea why. You're like, okay, cool. I built this thing that I thought was really cool myself. We thought it was cool. We release it. Other people are using it, which is awesome. We have no idea why. So now let's go and reverse engineer. What is the problem that they are thinking that this tool is solving for them? And do a lot of research and learn and learn and learn. And then form those personas. So you're kind of reverse engineering all the like learning and the marketing and the persona forming that you should have maybe done at the beginning. Maybe should have is not the right word, but you could have done at the beginning, but you've actually got kind of flipped that process on its head. So that's more of the route that we've taken to things. We just build things. We think they're cool. We'll release them. See how they go. I think that's a pretty long way to answer your question. No such thing. I think it's just so fascinating. I'm absorbing every moment of it. And David Sachs is the SaaS king. I love following him. He's got a cool podcast, All In Podcast, if anyone wants to check him out. Really, really cool with the whole four horsemen. So what would you say when you saw this reversal in process to reverse engineering it? It's almost like a life hack, a guideline on how to grow a startup because 30 years ago, pre-Facebook, pre-YouTube, PayPal, it was the Wild West. It was 
the VCs, you know, taking control of your company saying, we're the smart ones, we're the MBAs. And now I think we've seen the opposite, which is founders dictate the way. And there's enough founders in the last 20 years who have done it, that we can get guidance from people who actually have done a good job, who actually have crossed the river and can share very concise, useful information. Yeah, I think there's a lot about entrepreneurship technology that's changing so rapidly, like the rise of the creator economy, even though the creator economy really has existed basically since the dawn of the internet, but how popularized the term has become now and today and how many different career paths they are to either becoming, like we talked about early on, more financially independent and like building a lifestyle business that actually might be a very large, large business itself, or building companies in non-routine ways, like where community is actually maybe prioritized more rather than built as an afterthought, but like building companies based around communities. It's very enlightening to hear your perspective on the things and it's never enough to keep absorbing whatever you're saying because it's very enlightening and maybe for you, it's something that's always going through your head and you know, you're trying to explore the process and discover more about how you can do things within your project or business. But for us and for perhaps others who are trying to figure things out, it is incredibly enlightening. So thanks for sharing. Uh, I'm also figuring everything out too. Don't worry. (laughs) Exactly. And that's the beauty of it is we really don't know what this will lead us to. And if you did, you would be way ahead than where you are right now. But you getting to this point is very inspiring and that's why we're very excited to have you on the show and sharing this stuff like sometimes an hour is just not enough for us to absorb everything that you've been sharing with us it's really really exciting so thanks for that and where does macro io sit right now can you share more about that project perhaps yes yeah, so macro is what we call a zoom client for creatives we have basically partnered with zoom using their developer ecosystem and built a third-party app that can access and join any Zoom meeting, even if everyone else is on the call on Zoom. And why you'd want to use a different client is we really have tried to make this the most engaging, delightful, beautiful client solely based on expression. And expression comes in many forms and factors, but nonverbal and verbal communication, inclusion, it's all about how you communicate with people and putting people at the front and center of the conversation. And what we're able to do with Macro, why I think we've struck such a nerve is right now like video communication is some of the most intimate form of communication i think it goes anything synchronous is very intimate especially even audio and podcast live audio like clubhouse and video i think is the most intimate because a lot of people have apprehensions and anxiety about putting themselves on live camera on video feeds with everybody else so when we do that when we're kind of being vulnerable and exposing ourselves to these people either strangers even friends on the internet it still feels really uncomfortable and it feels so awkward. And a lot of that, our belief is, is caused by the interface, not necessarily about who you're talking to or what you're talking about, but rather the medium to which you're connecting with that person. And when you're in person, you get to really control a lot of like where you meet up or how you're presenting yourself. And you have so many extra dimensionalities of how you convey who you are and express yourself. When you're on video, it literally flattens. And now you're a 2D rectangle in Zoom. And we are trying to add more dimensionality to that. We're breaking the constraints of boxes and rectangles and grids and trying to elevate the interface to a level that actually like meets people where they are and how they want to express themselves as opposed to constraining people to only one way of expressing themselves on video call, infusing culture and personality into your calls. And so that's where macro is and for the state of the product. So I think you guys should tell because we had a little mini launch last week with a kind of reserved username flow. But on Wednesday this week, we're actually launching the full product live to the public. And so that will be hopefully a big splash as we try to open up our wait list, get everyone on the product and see where it goes. That is just such a novel concept in a very good way. And I'm blown away that people can actually think of this and you know how you translate the real world to this and that there's a need for it. So it's such a fascinating process to coalesce all your experience background and things that people need in building it i think it's just really commendable it's amazing and it really just outlines your purpose i can tell the passion the drive how important this is to bring to the world and kudos to you for getting zoom to be like yeah let's do it because they were in the limelight in the last 12 months basically 
the biggest company you can think of when it comes to conferencing and you know skype fell off the wagon and all these other things did you guys build it start to finish with your background and what was that process like so i want to take someone who you know is thinking about all these micro content creations ecom how do you get someone to go to the dark side to build a software product and say that's a good idea you should give it a shot yeah so i guess to clarify a little bit so we started building on top of zoom in october november of 2019 so a few months probably like four or five months before the pandemic zoom had already kind of had a developer ecosystem and there's no kind of like formal they're open platform anybody that can actually just go on zoom's website read the documentation and look through all the different kind of developer tools that they offer but i think that in the last two and a half years and especially the last year and a half during the pandemic they've doubled down on saying their platform is a priority i mean the ceo eric has even gone i think in the last learning call or two learning call ago and said you know video remote work covid has accelerated this future where zoom has been able to fill that gap and help people connect but it also has created a new set of problems that did not exist before and zoom won't be the person that solves all those problems but rather they'll enable people to help solve those problems also and so i think that for us we just kind of read that and listened to that as that is him kind of shining the beacon on saying they want to enable a platform where zoom is the backbone and everyone else can actually create their own personalized experience on top of them and what that means zoom apps that kind of come up inside the interface that they publicly launched a few weeks ago or custom clients like third full blown third party clients like macro and so we've been incredibly supportive helping aid in that feedback loop and i think both mutually benefiting off of the importance of customization and this importance of like this new kind of world where zoom becomes a platform and a protocol so your question of like how do you convince people to join you i think so zoom and this idea was probably our, i think our second and third pivot of macro and so we already had a small engineering team at that point but when we started to like land on this idea from learning from the failures or the learnings from our previous ideas we all got really excited because the potential and this is again pre-covid the potential of basically being able to interject software into the middle of one of the most human experiences that was incredibly exciting and i think that hiring in general is i think it's almost cliche at this point but hiring is really really hard like it is just the hardest thing to do period as a company and it remains to be what's actually been fascinating for us is aside from myself and john who obviously knew each other in school and one of our employees who was one of my best friends in undergrad every single other person on our team we have met and hired through twitter and so twitter has actually been the number one kind of source and uh, of candidates and we're able to see the password experience but like see their personality and they're usually also able to engage with us and see our team member personality our company persona and so it almost is like little inside book into who this person is that you don't see really on linkedin or you don't get on a resume so twitter's been fantastic and again another cliche but the whole thing about i can't believe this platform is free now it's going to start to not be free with twitter blue but only i'm saying that kind of jokingly that twitter's are alive just in like in terms of like you invest a ton of time into it and it is social media and it is addictive but it can be very very beneficial and productive it was always the stepchild that people made fun of because facebook had a huge valuation twitter kind of flopped wasn't growing but people have to realize that you know using an analogy for your life growth takes time and the way you come on to something that is a eureka moment or there's no right place and right time that you have to be just to succeed it can be on your own level and it's a discovery process so just tying into what you started with you know being curious and trying things everyone's on their own journey and i think twitter is as well and our connection with yourself was twitter reaching out like you said for the whole username thing and our interactions with people you can have a safe place to have a intellectual conversation with someone and to actually be a sponge and learn from smart people you've got these silos of real estate twitter ecom crypto startups and eventually this network effect of under 1000 or 100 people really gets you in front of people who will employ you or will share ideas or will come on the show and 
I think you're right. I think it's this hidden gem of interactivity that is enabling content creation. It's enabling branding. So it's so easy to just share your voice, even if no one's listening. Yeah, it sometimes feels like you're kind of shouting out into the void. And like you said, maybe no one's listening. But in general, usually people are. And I think that I did not understand Twitter when it first came out. I still didn't understand it. Like, even a few years ago, three, four, five years ago, I just didn't get it. Like, why would I be tweeting? I also am not a person who posts Facebook statuses. That's just kind of not who I am. But having some time on the platform, you really see its value and you see how informative it can be. But then you also see the flip side, right? Which is like how your Twitter timeline can literally influence your worldview and your perspective and what you think is important and what's happening right now in the world. And someone else's, who you may think is in your peer group, could be so different just based off of who you follow. And so that's the thing where it can get kind of scary, right? Is you're self-selecting into this isolated view of the world and that it will be probably where you form your opinions either subconsciously or consciously. And that can be really powerful. And I guess that power is a double-edged sword for sure. You're really describing my point of view exactly of how I used to view Twitter. And even though right now I perhaps I'm not as active in terms of posting, but I am quite active in actually the following I have in terms of who I follow. And like you mentioned, it's kind of a community that you get to select who you want to be around and how you can learn. And that's when you form your opinions and perhaps can bounce off ideas of each other. And I definitely was always underestimated Twitter myself. I was guilty of that until very recently. So even though I had an account for a while, I never really used it much until very recently. So it is, like you and John mentioned, it is a hidden gem, I think. There's a lot of potential there, especially for people who want to learn anything in life. So you get to be around the people that really have similar ideas and get to share your opinions with each other. So it's quite a platform. A point I want to bring up earlier was with regards to macro and Zoom. So you've been effectively working with Zoom for, let's say, two years now. But how much longer before that did you guys start the idea, if you don't mind me asking as well? So just to share listeners, an overnight story is not really an overnight story. Definitely not an overnight story. Definitely not a success either. Because we're still in beta, we're still launching. And I don't know what at what point you could legitimately call something a success or not. But yeah, I mean, like I said, we were on this idea of time. And that was about September of 2018. We actually very quickly pivoted away from that because we realized people don't manage their personal lives on a calendar. So it's really hard to get data about where they're currently spending their time. But what we did was we said, okay, where are people spending their time that we can have a data source that's like a source of truth? And we said, okay, well, work. In the workplace, your entire work life is managed by a calendar. You need to just for the necessity of work and coordination and all this stuff. And so the calendar is an incredibly rich data source. So we said, okay, well, what parts of work do we want to try to improve. And I mean, the biggest thing, the only thing that are, is on people's calendars is meetings. And that's where we got lost with an idea of, okay, well, meetings, people always say that these suck. They've complained about meetings since the beginning of meetings. And there's so much thought leadership around meetings. Like people will post, there's literally meeting consultants that can come into your company and help you revamp your meeting culture. The articles that go viral from HBR or whatever is like, here are 10 tips to improve your meetings. Like Jeff Bezos has this philosophy on Amazon meetings and the two pizza stuff. And so that was just like, okay, we found something that's really interesting. There's a lot of cultural movement, there's a lot of energy and effort around how that make this better, but the complaints are still happening and there's no software to help you make your meetings better. Why is that? And so all we did at the very beginning was we built a Slack bot and it's called Molo, which is actually still the official and quickly name of our company. And it would just rate your meetings. And so after you'd add it to Slack and you'd have a meeting and you'd look at your calendar and say, cool, you know, John and Kyle just got out of a meeting. They DM you on Slack and say, Hey, John, hey, Cal, what did you think of this meeting? You'd rate it on a scale of one to five, but they were emojis. So like upset face, happy face. If you rated it negatively, you could fill in feedback as to why or choose from a pre-selected method of options. Um, and it was all anonymous. And the best part was because we had access to your calendar, you would say, okay, John and Cal were just meeting with these eight other people. Let me DM them on Slack too, who was bought automatically. And the bot would DM them and say, Hey, Bob. Saw you were in a meeting with John and Cal. They were using Marla to measure their meetings. So what did you think? And it just went viral because at the end, it would say that, hey, Bob, you want to connect your calendar too so you can rate all your meetings, not just the ones with Cal. And it really quickly grew. Like within a few months, like 30,000 people, large companies, Uber, Wayfair, Toast, 
all over the place using Marla to like their meetings. And then we had a choice of like, we either try to start to give recommendations, we can dabble in a little bit, but to give actual granular recommendations, you need a ton of data and you also need very pinpointed specific data, uh, which I don't think we had. That was kind of one angle. The second was we got tons of pull from management companies to build this sort of HR analytics dashboard to figure out who is the best performer at meetings, who is the worst performer at meetings. And it was like this kind of big brother tool that managers could use to monitor their employees like in performance review, et cetera. We hated that idea because we thought that was like such an invasion of privacy. Like our whole goal and John and I are very consumer oriented people and we always want to build for the consumer more than the company. So again, it was much more B2C than B2B. And the last was what we ended up doing, which was we took the data and started like looking at it and said, like, what's something interesting we learned? And we found that in virtual meetings, basically calendar invite links that had a Zoom meeting or a Google meet, they were rated lower 40% of the time. And most likely the highest reason of why they were rated lower based on our data, highest correlation was because somebody had dominated the conversation. They basically shut other people out and took up all the airtime in the meeting. And that was our first idea. And we said, well, what if we actually could put on Pokemon style health bars under every single person in the meeting? And if you were like taking all the oxygen out of the room, being a loud mouth, you could see people visually understand like their health bar would be going lower. Like you need to necessitate to shut up and let them breathe. And so that was an idea. Obviously the health bars, that doesn't really work because what's full, like is that average air time? Is it hundred percent air time? It's very complicated there. But that was the idea, and that got us building on top of Zoom. That got us focused on airtime, which is one of the core features of MacBooks still to this day. And yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of different directional soul searching while we're on top of Zoom and like saying, how do we make this interface the best? But eventually it kind of came to what I talked to you about earlier, which is this bring your full self. How do you help people express themselves in a world in which video is the main way to communicate with people? So, so cool. And being able to come up with an idea or an iteration and just throwing it in. You had that first success with the Slack bot. And was that the sole driver of pivoting to macro and saying, okay, now we're going to use that data to make these features? And do you have two or three core launch features that you'll be launching on Wednesday? And what do you think that iteration process is going to look like? And that feedback loop of testing an idea and seeing what works and then going back to the drawing board and growing and growing. And to finish off, I guess, is there an overarching goal of every Zoom person needs to use macro. Is that the long-term goal? Yeah, great question. So airtime is still a core feature that I can talk about. That's actually part of our public like, launch of a proof of concept more than a year ago. We are launching a lot of other features, which I'll purposely kind of be vague about. So that you, when on come Wednesday, you get macro and you can start to explore it for yourself. But it's all focused on expression. And airtime is obviously a lot of verbal expression, right? But then there's a lot of nonverbal, how you react, how intensely you react, what you react with in meetings. And so it's all about expression and identity too. Like how do you identify in that meeting? What is your role in that meeting? How are you doing today? Adding social context to it. So there's a lot that we're launching with that we can't wait for you to see. We literally were a feedback company with Marla. So we take this like really, really seriously and high priority. And so we try to make ourselves accessible to wherever our users are and make it easy as possible for them to get feedback. And so our feedback loops are, we just have a ton of sources of feedback that we try to consolidate them. So Email, people obviously email us the feedback. People, we have in-app chat, like they can actually chat directly to us. You can post on our website, feedback.macro.io and give us a bunch of feedback. We have a Discord server with almost a thousand people in it already who are, who've been beta testing macro with us and they give us like routine feedback and we do focus groups and do design iteration testing with people in the beta Discord. And so we're just trying to make our system accessible because the feedback, you want to make it as easy as possible for you to get feedback. And then what you do with that is your own kind of internal process. I think our philosophy is like cover all the bases. Discord is kind of just like for our persona of creators and people who like really like, so like to try out the software, like Discord has become that second place on the internet. And so it made complete sense. So hey, let's create a server there. And then your last question, like finishing off on does the end state look like oh, we want everyone to use macro? Honestly, the answer is no. I think that what we're trying to do is show people that the future of software is personalized. And what that means is you're trying to build highly, highly opinionated software. It's for you. It's not for your company. It's not for your team. It's not for some random corporation. It is for you and you alone. And the fact is every single one of us are so different and how we choose to communicate is very different. 
And so that means inherently that macro will not be the Zoom client for everybody. But rather, it will be right now the Zoom client for a specific subset of people that we've built for, which is the people who care about this expressiveness. And some other people might not care about expressiveness in meetings, and maybe they care a little bit more about collaboration or productivity. And what we're trying to do in our kind of a whole kind of master strategy, if you will, is this one-two punch of right now, bring your full self. We're being a little prescriptive of what that full self means by saying, like, hey, here are the options that we think are really cool for you to bring your full self into meetings. So we're spearheading that with like, here's macro, like look what what's possible and here are the things that we've built to show you kind of the extent of what's possible. But the longer term is actually creating the foundation through the same development of macro where anyone can create their own custom client for Zoom. And they can customize it with no code, just do it all through a platform and build their own client, which is like personalized to them. It's almost like in video games, you have a character and you customize your character and you buy skin or you unlock clothing and, and items and all this stuff and it becomes really yours and uniquely yours. We want to have help like you because in video, that's how you communicate. That's how you're kind of playing the game, quote unquote. We want to help you kind of customize it to your own liking fully through macro. And so will it be the macro client that everyone's joining Zooms with? No, but we actually do see this future in which macro is used for everyone to build their own customized client to join video software with. That's awesome. And the first thing that comes to mind short term is, hey, maybe you can migrate to something like Twitch and streamers and find in that plug to where people are going to broadcast and can they express their individuality that way as opposed to just a camera with a background and super long term. The whole time when you started speaking, I'm just thinking, which I have zero exposure to, but what does this look like in VR? And do you build an avatar for people to walk around in the world? You hear of all these, you know, NFT homes and the digital space is just exploding. So, you know, with your interest in crypto slash this kind of stuff, I mean, we don't have to talk too much about it, but I could see two, three steps ahead. How cool would that be if you jumped into that space and super long-term macro became how you express yourself to the world in whatever medium that is? Yeah, I think that VR is super interesting. I'm not sure if you've seen Facebook's announcement from last week of their kind of take on the metaverse and what that Facebook VR meeting experience looks like. I think it was quite polarizing. I think VR is still really early in terms of technology and to widespread adoption that it is still not on our kind of priority list. Um, Web3 and crypto, I think, will for sure have an impact, especially around identity and expression and community as it already has. And I think that that will make its way into almost every form of software, whether that's for work or for play or for anything in between. And so I think that we're still evaluating the options. I think they're both early days and we're excited to see what's to come. Yeah, just for our listeners and ourselves, I actually didn't get a chance to view it. So can you give us the 10 second version of what that Facebook presentation was all about? I forget what they called it, but they basically created this VR world where you walk around and it honestly looks to me like that. If you ever remember like from the Nintendo Wii, your character on the Nintendo Wii, like the Wii people, you can create one and customize it to how you look. It basically looks like that and you're wearing a VR headset and you're sitting at a conference table with a VR headset on. And in that VR world, your colleagues are sitting around the table. You can still type on your laptop, but you're having a meeting in VR looking like these Nintendo Wii characters. And VR technology is still far away. And I think that especially in digital representation, like if you're not actually on live video, like naturally if you look at video games and the NFT movement and all this stuff, like people want to express themselves as differently than who they are in person because digital is such a different medium and it's a different world. So trying to make them so that however you appear in the physical world is exactly how you appear in the digital world, like that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I think digital expression is inherently different. It's digital native, not just kind of transplanting from one to the other. So I think that if there's a solution that is to exist in that VR and digital world, it will be much more around that personalization, identity, and expression, rather than just porting over how you look physically into that world. Yeah, I've read the news on Facebook's view of the multiverse, as you call it, in VR. It's quite interesting, but again, I haven't watched anything in that regard. So I agree, it's perhaps quite interesting and maybe at its infancy at this stage. But I gotta say, Anka, your enthusiasm is contagious. And, you know, for all those who are listening out there, if, if you're not excited after the way you shared with us 
your outlook with macro, what your plans are, how you guys viewed and got to where you are today alone is very impressive to say the least. It's a lot of hard work, a lot of sweat was put into it. I can tell and really, really wish you all the best with it. John and Cal, I appreciate all the kind words for giving me the opportunity to come on your podcast and just have, like you talked about from the very beginning, just like a fun, engaging conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been amazing. And we're very excited for the launch of Macro. We'll make sure we tweet it out and all the best. And we'd love to have you on back again in the future sometime. For sure. And I will let John Keck, my co-founder, know and maybe you guys can have him on and talk about DoorDash. Absolutely. We'd love to. Maybe one day, even when you're in the region, we can hop over to Bahrain. We can go to a Formula One race together or we can go to Texas too. We'd love uh, to. Don't, <laughs> don't tempt me. That would be the dream. <laughs> one day we'll stay in touch for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, John and Cal, thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your weekends. And I'm excited for the see you live. Thanks so much again. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.